Welcome to The Pharmacists Are In, a podcast made for pharmacists by pharmacists, hosted by John Papasturjo. John is a frontline community pharmacist owner, assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy at both the University of Toronto and University of Waterloo, and an internationally recognized speaker, author, and researcher. Today's guest is Sautiris Antonio. Sautiris is a consultant pharmacist in cardiovascular disease and the chair of IPACT, the International Pharmacist for Anticoagulation Task Force. He is an independent prescriber and looks over a patient cohort in a tertiary referral center in a London hospital, as well as over patients outside of the hospital in primary care. Sautiris crosses many traditional boundaries of pharmacy care and is a leader in his field. Join John and Sautiris as they discuss the evolution of pharmacy practice scope in the UK and how it compares to the pharmacy landscape in Canada. Listen in as they touch on pharmacists' role in optimizing anticoagulation management, ensuring adherence, correct dosing, and changes in anticoagulation therapy recommendations. Sautiris also offers his insight and expertise in atrial fibrillation screening. Tune in to a conversation on the cutting edge of cardiovascular pharmacy practice. Pull up a seat and let's get started. Welcome everyone. We're here live from the 78th World Congress of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce uh, Sotiris Antonio. Can I say uh, one of the world experts in anticoagulation? Not quite. Let's not, let's not push it. I, I, I think so. Uh, uh, we got a lot of things to talk about, actually. There's a lot of questions I've, I've got for you. But maybe before we start, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, what's your practice like? So thanks, John, for the invite. Yeah. So Sotiris Antonio, I'm a consultant pharmacist in cardiovascular disease. And what that means is you reach a certain level as a specialist in a certain condition. So for mine, is cardiovascular disease, and I look after patients with complex cardiovascular disease, I'm an independent prescriber, which means I can prescribe for the conditions. And I look after a patient cohort in a large tertiary referral centre based in London, but I also look after a group of patients outside of the hospital as part of the primary care. So part of my role is working across boundaries, the traditional boundaries between hospital and primary care, which means I get to look at patients from across the whole patient pathway. So you work primarily in hospital. I know you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I know in the UK has undergone, especially in community, a lot of a lot of change recently. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Because it's something we're really talking about in Canada as well. Yes, I think most people, most of your audience will know the traditional role of the community pharmacist, where patients drop off the prescriptions, an opportunity to support patients with adherence, identify some other things, and you, your own practice, are doing some advanced work and then you might have the other traditional role of a pharmacist in hospital where you're reviewing the prescribing and ensuring optimizing medicines use in the hospital settings but more recently we've now put pharmacists in GP practice pharmacists okay. and I think there's something unique that for a pharmacy that could make us a bit more joined up as a profession recognizing that from a patient that comes in primary care seeing a pharmacist in a GP practice to help manage long-term conditions linking that in with the community pharmacists as part of ongoing support with on adherence to medicines and pickup rates, as well as the link in if that patient was ever to get admitted into hospital, where there is also some initiatives talking about transferring care around medicines, which basically means that if somebody, when they come into hospital, we often start new medicines, 
there's an opportunity to transfer that information to the community pharmacist and also the practice-based pharmacist to ensure that continuity of care, especially around any new medicines that prescribe and reducing the risks or mitigating the risks that are associated when you transfer patients from one clinical setting to another. So that community pharmacist now working in a primary care setting, they don't have any dispensing role at all? It's all clinical? The GP practice-based yeah. pharmacist does not have a wow. dispensing. They'd be prescribing and managing patients' traditional long-term conditions, as well as reviewing patients that have been recently admitted to hospital to ensure that they can continue optimising the care based on the guidance from the hospitals, but also touching base with the patients just to make sure they understand why these changes are happening. Wow, that's, that's, that's cool. It's really exciting stuff. So one of your other roles is your your chair of something we call IPACT. I'm a, a board member of IPACT. I've you know got to meet a lot of great pharmacists from all over the world because of kind of the work we do with IPACT. Tell me a little bit about uh, IPACT. Yeah, IPACT is stands for the International Pharmacists in Anticoagulation Care Task Force. So it's built up over time. So now we've got over twenty countries involved. Yeah. So including Brazil, China. Germany, France, across Europe, including Africa. And I guess the real interest here is how can we as a collective support and take forward and raise the profile of pharmacists and pharmacy in general in improving the care of patients receiving currently anticoagulation, although it's now to be moved towards antithrombotics. So there's some really good practice in many of the countries and what we often do is have great individual practice in that country and what we want to do a bit better is share that and this is where the network comes in to help share some of that learning and prevent that reinvention of the will. Yeah and you, you know uh, what I've gotten out of it we've got academics, hospital pharmacists, community pharmacists, <coughs> all very I think diverse experiences, different practice settings but we've almost created a network now not only in anticoagulation but we collaborate on a bunch of other things as well and to me Pharmacy is such a small world, even globally. And, you know, I think this is a very unique thing that we've created. I always say a group of international pharmacists focusing on one therapeutic area, and now we've gone beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's getting like-minded people who are willing to put some effort to share on the benefit of the greater good, which is improving and demonstrating the value that pharmacists can bring in improving patient care. And this space, anticoagulation, has changed a lot in recent years. I mean, historically, we had warfarin, you know, a bunch of other drugs, but now it's just kind of exploded, right? Tell me about that, uh, the role of DOACs, what that's meant to your practice, practice in general. I know uh, we've had all these patients that were being monitored very closely for their INR now that have dropped off to other agents. Adherence is a big thing. Uh, I think the pharmacy play a huge role. Yeah, I think... Traditionally, we've had, we've known warfarin's an effective drug, but as you know, warfarin's not for everyone. So we've known, for example, in atrial fibrillation, that warfarin or anticoagulation is three times more effective than using aspirin in reducing the risk of strokes. However, traditionally, we haven't been so good in promoting the benefits of warfarin to patients, or for whatever reason, patients have declined the use of warfarin because of the impact it has on their daily lives. Now we've got alternatives such as the NOACs or the DOACs, which are the direct oral, oral anticoagulants or the non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant drugs. 
such as rivaroxaban, apixaban, doxaban, and dabigatran. And what this has offered was a change in landscape such that we can optimise the care of patients requiring anticoagulation with either warfarin or with the newer or more recently introduced NOACs. So as a community <coughs> pharmacist, and I know many community pharmacists, they've been exposed to the DOACs, NOACs. You know, are there differences? What are the differences? To many pharmacists, you know, they just don't know. Yeah, so the, I guess the main thing for a jobbing community pharmacist is these are still anticoagulants, and we know that anticoagulants are traditionally termed a high-risk medicine in that patients, if they're wrongly dosed, could have a risk of major bleeding. But if we also know that with long-term conditions, and often anticoagulation is required for long-term conditions, people don't take their medicines. We know around a third to half of patients aren't taking their medicines as required. So there's a real integral role that community pharmacists can play. In fact, pharmacists from all sectors can play in supporting patients, making sure that they're on the right dose for the right patient. And that's based on their kidney function, maybe their weight, maybe other concomitant drugs as an example, but also supporting patients around adherence. And we know that with adherence, that can alter depending on the patient's beliefs around necessities and concerns around the medicines or some third information they've got from a friend who's on the same drug and you often hear warfarin being termed as rat poison and that can have an impact but also side effects. Yeah so we've had we had a patient in in community this happened just probably two weeks ago at a patient he was on uh, uh, Zeralto went to the hospital you know minor bruising wasn't a big deal a physician told him you know what go off it for a few days patient stroke died, you know. Why, why is the adherence so important, especially with this class? Yeah, that's a, a case in point, and I think we should all take a lesson to learn about that. And the real opportunity for pharmacies recognising a NOAX are unlike warfarin, which had a much longer half-life. Right. And as a result, if you stop warfarin, it's still being in your system some days after. With the NOAX, the half-life is a lot shorter, so somewhere between 7 and 11 hours, and depending on your own kidney function. And as a result, if you miss a dose, there is a risk that you suddenly go completely cleared out of your system, and as such, you're not going to be protected. And that's a concern, so we need to support patients around how they do that. And just think about some basic questions about how they can incorporate it into their daily routines. But you guys, as community pharmacists, know more about that than I do. Well, and if there's a lesson here for the community pharmacists, and I can speak for those in Ontario, if you got a patient that comes in, they're out of refills. Uh, in Ontario, you need a special code for, for the DOACs. Um, do not let the patient leave without at least some medications. We're, we're fortunate enough where with our scope, we're able to extend prescriptions in Ontario. Use that scope. Extend those prescriptions. Learn from that story because you could send someone home, say, I'll get you a new script tomorrow. I'm calling your doctor, reaching out. And that patient can stroke, potentially die, it's, it's, and it's happened, and we have examples of that. You know? And even in the UK, every community pharmacist has the opportunity to do audits. It would be really nice to look at them to make sure that these patients on their system receiving these newer agents, it would be nice for them to show that all their patients are getting them in time to make sure they don't run out of their medicines. But it's also an opportunity to just ask them simple questions about how they're getting on with the medicines, any side effects, any issues, have they missed any tablets? One of, one of the other things I, I, where I think pharmacists can play a huge role here is in making sure that patient's on the right dose, right? It's not simply about age or weight or elderliness. It's, it's really about, uh, you know, what do the guidelines say? 
you know, which drug are you on and what do you do in a case of, uh, you know, a patient's on a low dose and they shouldn't be or whatnot? What do, you, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, there's been multiple publications around demonstrating that we're on often not dosing the patients appropriately. Even in my own practice, we've highlighted that there's some opportunities to make sure that we focus that these patients are receiving the right dose. Most of all of them, in fact, all of these drugs are cleared to a certain degree based on the kidney function. And we also know, based on their kidney function, that we all need to alter the dose. And a classic example is, say, rivaroxaban 20, if their creatinine clearance is below 50, then you should reduce the dose to 15 milligrams, per, 15 milligrams daily for atrial fibrillation, stroke prevention. However, the clinical trial dose alterations on the kidney function was based on the Cockrell and Gulk calculation for their creatinine clearance. However, most hospital systems were finding using EGFR. Okay. And it has been shown that the EGFR is not strictly correlated with the creatinine clearance. So you just be mindful that you may have some patients who should require an alteration that are not requiring, but also some patients who are that don't need a requirement. So this is something just to check that we are dosing it based on their accurate kidney function. And I think, you know, you touched on this already, but if you're a pharmacist out there, you get a script, check the dose, talk to the patient, ask some questions. If you're unsure, you know, do a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, research, maybe reach out to the doc, but you got to get these patients on the right dose because the risk, if, if from what I've heard, if you're anticoagulated but not appropriately anticoagulated, those strokes can be even more devastating. And we've been given simple messages to our community pharmacists and pharmacists in general is the ABC rule. So just think A for age, B for body weight, C for creatinine clearance. If you want to be super cool, you go A, B, C, D, where the D is for drug interactions. Have that, and then you can refer to the product just to say, ah, oh, this patient's over the age of 75, let me just check that this dose is right for him, because he's on a normal full dose. That might be appropriate, but just check, because there are alterations based on the A, B, C, D. So A for age, B for body weight, so think about less than 60 kilos. C for creatinine clearance, so think about their kidney function, if it's below 50 mils per minute, might need a reduction in the dose, and D, any drug interactions that might impact on that. That's Hopefully, a, great, great a simple message. message. Yeah, simple, great message. You touched, about a, you touched on AFib a little bit before. It's kind of one of our areas of interest. We've done a lot of work in AFib screening, you know, the role of the pharmacist there. Tell us a little bit about your experience and kind of some of the work IPAC's doing in that area. Yeah, so this is a massive opportunity for pharmacists to demonstrate their value in contributing to the public health agenda. So we know if you look at the UK, and I think it's represented globally now, that within the UK we've got around half a million people walking about with atrial fibrillation that we just don't know about it. And most, unfortunately, we often know about it when they've ended up having a stroke and we identify the atrial fibrillation there. So what we want to do, and we've been working closely with the Atrial Fibrillation Association, is helping detect atrial fibrillation. So anybody comes up and known as with most long-term condition, AFib is a, increases its prevalence and incidence as we get older. So if anyone is over the age of 65, we should either do a manual pulse, which is really easy, just to test whether the rhythm is regular. So not about the rate, but the rhythm. And if it's irregular, just ask them to get it checked out. It might be nothing, but it might also save their life and identify that they might have AFib. But as you know, we've also got these new mobile sure. ECGs that you can have on the back of the phone to identify, and they produce 
a single lead ECG. And these technologies are massive enabler for community pharmacists. In particular, there are some countries that we've identified within IPAT is that you have laws not to touch patients, which sounds really strange. But using this technology enables them to be part of that public health agenda, sure. identify potential possible AF that needs to refer. And, and we've had a lot of success in my practice. We use the Alive Court. It's exactly <laughs> that. Connects to an iPhone or a, a, you know an Android device. Patients love it. We have AFib screening clinics, patients with risk factors. We ask them if they want a quick test. And we've, we've had some positives. We've identified some patients. And even in the negatives, it's a fun thing for the patients to do. They engage the pharmacist, you get an opportunity to talk to them, maybe do a medication review. Builds a lot of loyalty, I find, as well with that community. The pharmacy. amount of people have come back to me and said, thanks for doing that test. It just highlights to them when you found it. And what's pleasing is the first time we did this was back in 2016 with IPAC. We have five mm -hmm. countries. We screened approximately 1,700 people. Last year, we did 10 countries, so a doubling. We screened over 2,500. So identified, referred over 200 people to their general practitioner physician to identify they might have possible AF. So hopefully this year, in November, where it's World Heart Rhythm Week and World AF Week, so there's two times in the year, in June and in November, every year we get an opportunity to do this AF screening or AF detection to demonstrate the value that pharmacists can contribute towards the public health agenda. A great message. And, and for those you know, new pharmacists out there, you're thinking, hey, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to change my practice. If there is an easy program to implement, that's it. It doesn't take a lot of money. It's very simple to do. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time. Patients love it. If you're thinking of adopting any point of care kind of initiatives in your, in your practice, I'd say start with that one because it's, it's really, really simple. So maybe worth just getting people to refer to our website. Yeah. So www.ipat, so it's ipact.org. Have a look. All the information's free there but feel free to register. It'd be great to get some more new members from different countries. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be great. Maybe we could grow this uh, you know, AFib screening initiative uh, even bigger and bigger, and every year it gets bigger. So I think, yeah, a lot of great work being done there. I wanted to change directions a little bit because I know as a community pharmacist, you know, we're kind of bombarded with things that we have to do. It's really easy to get behind on what's new, what's new in the literature, you know, what's the evidence saying. And we know... Uh, Something I keep hearing about is the COMPASS trial. COMPASS trial is coming out. It's going to change the way possibly we do things. Tell me a little bit, what is COMPASS? What did it tell us? Uh, what are some of your therapeutic pearls out of COMPASS maybe for you know pharmacists that hasn't had a chance to review the data at all? So COMPASS is important for multiple reasons, in particular for the community pharmacist, because the dose is different to that used in atrial fibrillation. Now, the reason why that's so important is we know that rivaroxaban is normally once a day for AFib, but actually for this, based on patients with coronary artery disease or peripheral arterial disease, so people with a long-term condition, there's some data that shows that with the combination of rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily with aspirin, it reduces the outcomes of cardiovascular mortality, so dying from cardiovascular disease or having a heart attack or a stroke. Now this is important because if you've never seen rivaroxaban 2.5 twice daily before, you might automatically think apixaban right. 2.5 milligrams yeah. twice daily. We've seen that in our practice. Yeah. No, I, no, absolutely right. And the other challenge is a lot of times the aspirin, especially uh, in Canada, is over the counter. You're not getting it as part <coughs> of a prescription, right? So being aware, you're supposed to take both together. 
Yes, yeah. yes. And the other thing, recognising that rivaroxaban is an anticoagulant on top of an antiplatelet, right. some patients got a high risk of having a major bleed. So that's another thing that we just need to monitor to make sure are they getting bruising, any dark stores, any blood in the urine, those type of things, just to be mindful. Don't be afraid to ask them, getting any difficulties, any problems, or any bruising, significant bruising, just so that you can start picking up with things in case there are side effects for these individual patients. Is the role of the aspirin changing? Like, you know, it's something that pharmacists were used to just recommending high-risk patients. The evidence, I think, has changed a little bit over the last few years. Do you have a comment on that at all? Yeah, aspirin's been around for donkey's years, yeah. and actually it's still a good, effective drug. So we give aspirin to everybody who's got stable angina, anyone who's had a heart attack, or those patients require aspirin long-term, and it's been shown to reduce the risk of dying. That's really important, okay? However, there is some data, in particular for those that have not had an event, so for primary events, yeah. primary prevention, aspirin has been shown to increase the risk of bleeding, which is felt to outweigh the potential benefits of taking it. In fact, at the recent ESC Congress this year in Munich, there was a publication called the Ascend where they looked at aspirin in high-risk patients but not had an event. So included patients who had diabetes and again showed that aspirin did not provide adequate protection in comparison to the risk of having a major bleed. So most national and international guidelines now recommend aspirin for people who've had an event like a heart attack, but not for people who are high risk of an event. Those patients should just take a statin. Yes, it's a really important message, and I'll tell you, in my practice, I have a lot of senior ethnic patients, a lot of Greek patients, they come in, I'm just gonna take an aspirin. I think it's good for me. And they literally just wanna take it. And being able to explain it exactly the way you did, I think is important, because I guarantee you, you have patients who are buying aspirin over the counter, yeah. and it's just someone told them to take it, right? And also, if someone's buying it over the counter, just ask them what it's for, because it might be even for AFib. The amount of people, and that's where the benefit of the pharmacist comes in, just to look at going AFib, irregular heart rate, then in the taking aspirin, you might want to just have a discussion and say, actually, speak to your GP, might be more suited to an anticoagulant. That's great. No, great messages there. One of the other things, that I know we have this in common, you've been kind of the mentor to me in this space. I'm really about kind of trying to you know push the the professional pharmacy forward to do that we need evidence you know we need evidence uh we've collaborated on papers in the past how do we get the community pharmacists thinking uh, you know a little bit more about participating in practice research joining kind of groups like this i mean just the ability to kind of interact with other pharmacists and kind of learn from them i found it's been priceless for me personally uh, what, do you, what do you think about that I think there's a lot of good practice. We know that community pharmacists offer value to patients. That's without doubt. However, if you look at the randomized clinical trials that medics that really change practice, they do it over a number of countries and across a number of centers. So if we really feel the value, and that's a consistent value that community pharmacists can play, let's showcase that, let's do that, and let's do that. Hence why we're doing the A. AFib screening and a detection over different countries, and that is really gaining momentum. So we had over 10 countries, it's the largest collaboration between a profession with a atrial fibrillation association to show the value, and let's do that. If we can do other studies, and we're doing things around education, yeah. understanding the educational needs, but clearly if we can do things, rather than the one center example, it's 
far, far more powerful and will have the media and the other professionals recognise the value of pharmacy if we engage and do this from across an international, global, multi-centre collaborative approach. You know, we just got some funding uh, uh, in Canada to do some work with in pharmacogenomics around, you know, patients on warfarin. That's exactly what we did. You know, we, we accessed our little network here. You're going to be collecting data for us. We got Portugal, Belgium involved. It's just, you know, once you've established those relationships, it becomes pretty easy. And I think, uh, you know, when you're all said and done, you got the ability now to say, hey, I, this paper is based on multinational work. And historically, pharmacists haven't had a good way to do that. And you know yourself that when you publish just in Canada, you're more likely just to get a Canadian That's journal. Right. But now we've got multiple countries involved. There's an opportunity to get a higher impact factor, which will drive the awareness of the value that pharmacists can bring. And, and what we've started doing now as well is, uh, is getting our students to work together. I know yeah. you're a mentor to a lot of students. I take a lot of students. We've almost got like this, this network of minion students that are kind of working together, getting the opportunity to work with other students uh, from other countries. I mean, I wish I had that experience like when I was, you know, uh, you know, an undergrad and working through pharmacy school, but I think it's priceless. And I mean, I'm really proud of kind of what we've built here. And I think, you know, irregardless of what happens, I think the connections we've made, it's yeah. going to be something that we'll be able to, you know, continue to work on, build on, publish, do more. So it's, a, I think, a great thing. So, you know, Wrapping up, you know, one, you know, one last message, what, what would you say to kind of a new pharmacist uh, coming into practice? Uh, what are some of those uh, Sotiri tips that you'd uh, kind of drop on them? Um, that's a good question, John, and a nice one to wrap up with. I'd say the future, if we really want to move the profession forward, let's work collaboratively. Let's break down those traditional barriers, work together, because together we can achieve far more and ultimately that's what's going to drive the improvement in patient care that we're all striving for. It's an awesome message. Thanks, Otiri, for coming in, taking the time. I know FIP's a busy conference for everyone. Look forward to chatting more tonight. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, man. Nice seeing you again. This podcast was brought to you by IPACT, the International Pharmacist for Anticoagulation Task Force. Visit www.ipact.org for more information.